episode 311, How Aging in Place Becomes a Business Problem for FFS Providers. Today, I'm speaking with Sumit Nagpal. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. This episode might be about local providers getting disintermediated, not by virtual front doors, like I discussed with Jeff Hogan in episode 309, but by entities providing virtual continuous care at home. Predictive and proactive, the idea is to help reduce acute events requiring on-premises care. But if someone does wind up needing ramped up care, they can get it hospital at home or sniff at home instead of them going anywhere. So there's a baseline level of home monitoring followed by periods where care is stepped up. The point is everything is going down at home with the care coming to the person at the care level that they need, so it ramps up or down depending on what they're going through or need at the time. I'm talking today with Sumit Nagpal, CEO and founder over at Cherish Health. We talk about the goings-on in the whole aging in place, or as he calls it, living in place vertical. A couple of takeaways from our conversation I think are notable. First of all, who is going to drive first change here isn't going to be, for example, hospital systems at scale suddenly deciding to work against their own perverse incentives to keep heads out of beds. Our first movers here, the ones who will push assisted living at home or sniff at home or CCRC at home or whatever you want to call it at home, is going to be consumers and their families who either can't afford to or don't want to send grandma to an assisted living institution. So this is how it's going to go down. Families across the country install technology to keep grandma safe at home. A natural ally here, if you think about it, is big retail, by the way. Why wouldn't big retail and big tech sell these solutions to grandma's families like they sell televisions today? But the second that grandmas everywhere have monitoring software in their homes is the second that FFS-dependent hospitals and other providers have a problem on their hands, a business problem, that is. And assisted living facilities and SNFs working a similar model are in the same boat. Here's why. Actionable population health data is now available. And once that data is available and looked at predictively and proactively, Grandmas are not going to go to the ER like they once were for two reasons. Number one, proactive and predictive technology in the home will reduce acute events. And two, because if and when grandma does have an acute event, she's not calling an ambulance. The technology is notifying someone. Maybe it's notifying the Medicare Advantage plan that grandma's on, who has realized the power of all this at-home stuff And the Medicare Advantage plan, maybe just hooked up with a forward-thinking hospital that built an ER at home service or a hospital at home service, or maybe there's some national technology player who is providing similar services. Sumit Nagpal and I talk through how this might look and also the essential factors for the healthcare industry to eventually adopt an at-home model. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Sumit Nagpal, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Let's just talk about this frequently used term, healthcare is coming home. And it's being used a lot relative to older Americans, but, you know, kind of across the continuum. There's kind of two components to that. One is the setting, which is healthcare is at home. But the other implication maybe is that the second that healthcare moves home, there becomes the opportunity to monitor patients, let's just say, so that we can be proactive and predictive and keep patients from that having that acute event. That's exactly it. A lot of us go through phases of being just, you know, normal people going about our lives. Then we become patients. We go through those episodes when we're patients and then we're back to being, you know, not patients, essentially. There's nobody really following us, tracking us, helping us. Someone said something to me the other day that I hadn't really thought about. They were talking about bundled payments, you know, which is even leveling up the typical episodic care that we think of. You know, patient goes to the doctor and the whole episode lasts 30 minutes. You know, at least if you're talking about a, a bundle, you're talking about 30 days. But, you know, there's no continuity between what happens before or after that bundled episode. So, you know, we've lengthened the episode, but we haven't necessarily connected the dots between them, which I think is what you're saying. This is really about how do we help you stay safe and healthy for the rest of your life? And how do we make that become just a routine part of how you live rather than what you do when you start seeing that something's wrong? This is really about preventive ongoing maintenance rather than an episodic repair job. Although I've heard the term aging in place, everybody has for literally probably a decade. And now we're hearing more and more about technologies enabling individuals to stay at home sniffs at home, you know, skilled nursing facilities at home, like just lots of, you know, insert noun here at home. One of the things that I didn't really think of, and you've connected this dot in a new way for me, not only does that enable someone to just be at home, not take on all of the risks inherent in being on premises with a lot of other people, you know, especially in an era of pandemic and, you know, C. diff and (laughs) sepsis, but also just merely having the technology at home, what that also enables is for someone to be monitored even between episodes. I just never really thought about that. That's exactly it. And, and I struggle with the word patient when we describe this, right? Because you're just an individual, you're a participant in a program, you're living your life, and you've got somebody helping look over your shoulder. You've got a guardian angel who's making sure that you're doing okay, rather than you somehow being an active patient. Perhaps with people with chronic conditions, you've got more. You've got coaching and you've got additional assists. You've got you know, behavioral nudges around rewarding the kinds of things that help you stay, stay healthy and that help you improve your health. The way that this can work and become pervasive is really when this becomes a part of your daily life. One, easy, something that doesn't require extra work. And two, Something that actually gives you measurable ongoing benefit, reassurance on the one hand, a sense that, you know, just relating this to to aging in place, another phrase that I sort of, you know, it's it's not like we're we're cheese and we're aging uh, in <laughs> place. This is we're, we're living, right? We're, we're living our lives and we want to live our lives with as much joy, penance and freedom as we can. And I think that more and more as we go forward, we're going to see solutions be about that give us the ability to live where we want 
for as long as we want, as safely as possible. And then there are choices to be made about, well, when does that become not safe enough? Or what kinds of supports do you need for that to work? That's where this brave new world of, you know, healthcare is coming home is headed. And it's not just about healthcare is coming home, but care is coming home. So let's talk about a case study, a theoretical case study here. Let's just pretend that coming into this pandemic, we had had all of the connected devices and we can talk about some of them mm-hmm. a little bit later. But let, you know, let's just pretend that everybody's house was wired in the way that it would need to be wired to enable, if not aging in place, living at home in a monitored way, or I'm not sure what we call it. We need a, we need a whole new vocabulary here, assume it. Mm, exactly. But, you know, obviously you don't have to be an avid consumer of newspapers to realize that the pandemic hit older Americans who were living in facilities terribly. Let's just pretend that instead of being in those facilities, what would have been different? Even if you're in those facilities, imagine if there was something in the air, like your home security system, your home alarm system, that was able to pick up and sense that there was emerging risk, that your risk was increasing as an individual because of the things that it was able to sense. Yeah, so you say something in the air. Home security is a great example where we use ambient technology. We use technology that uses sensing ranging from contact to vibration to sound and uses that information to make a decision about, hey, is there somebody breaking in or did someone break a window? Those kinds of sensors are now pervasive. Just imagine an extension of that into individual homes in individual rooms. We were simply able to detect someone's heart rate and respiration without them having to do anything special. Imagine if we could pick that up out of the air. We would have been the canary in the coal mine, right? Yeah, for sure. Would you pick that up through the air? As an example. Or would they all be wearing Apple Watches? I'm being a bit predictive about the future, but this is not the future too far away, where we will be able to pick this stuff out of the air. There are already technologies available that do this. So I shouldn't bother buying the new Apple Watch is what you're saying? So I have very strong opinions about wearables versus this kind of ambient capability. And my opinions are really based on, you know, having lived and experienced how people relate to these things. The the challenge with wearables beyond the initial cost is just, and you have to remember to wear them. You have to not lose them. You have to remember to charge them. And what happens when you don't? You know, if you're talking about making a large scale change in cost and quality in the experience of care, that affects tens of millions of people. Relying on unreliable tech. The tech itself is not unreliable, but we as human beings are unreliable, right? Counting on people to change their behavior for long, long periods of time. I just don't see evidence that we can pull off. You had mentioned before I so rudely interrupted that we're going to have technologies that are actually ambiently in the air that can sense the individuals that are in that room. And that's actually on the horizon. That's a wowza. Very much so. This is the kind of technology that will start coming into market over the next few years. And you will see that this technology will be exactly the solution to the exact problem that you described. If this stuff had been in in nursing homes, in care homes, in senior living facilities, October, November of 2019, we would have seen plenty of evidence of emerging risk. You know, just as an example, elevated heart rate with deteriorating respiration. We would have picked up those kinds of signs. And if we'd picked up enough of that, 
maybe we would have said, hey, there's something going on that's not just about this one person. There's something going on that's affecting many people. And is this kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm just envisioning who will be receiving that signal and recognizing that it is actually a signal and not noise. And what comes to mind is that thermometer company that actually was doing a better job for a while predicting or not even predicting for reporting on where high COVID cases were based on, you know, they have a connected network. So it's a digital thermometer. And anytime someone takes a thermometer and their temperature is elevated, it gets plotted on this map of the United States. It almost sounds like who would be monitoring this may not be individual facilities per se who may not have the big picture and be able to say, whoa, this is a thing. This is a pandemic. You know, all they might know is that there's something in the facility. So it's almost it almost puts an onus on some larger entity to be monitoring what's going on. You've gone, you know, precisely to the place where, where I think some of the biggest challenges lie. The evidence around what to monitor and when to raise alarms already exists. There's well-established clinical protocols. And yet, there's so much signal coming off these devices that when you work with traditional healthcare, episode-based healthcare, this remote monitoring is just so difficult to socialize because it's not something that people get paid to do. It's not a part of their routine way of doing business. Yeah, besides that, everybody's concerned about malpractice. That's the other flag. Well, that's the first thing that comes. What if I miss something? The, the conversation, you know, typically begins with privacy and goes into, you know, other kinds of risks rather than into, hey, we could actually use these techniques to solve the biggest problem that we heard hospitals were facing during this entire period. And hospitals in other parts of the world continue to face. <laughs> other parts of the world, meaning Los Angeles? <laughs> I'm laughing. It's not <laughs> well, funny at all. It, right? Exactly. Right. It's, it's not funny at all. And we've seen the stories. We've seen the pictures. We've seen the videos. We've talked with people in these facilities, you know, and we've worked with them. And yet the question that you just asked is front and center. Well, wow, that's a lot of data. One, who's going to monitor this? And two, what if I miss something? Those are the two big things. And I have to tell you that neither here nor in most developed economies, is that question easy to answer in a way that could actually cause massive adoption of this kind of technology in the middle of a pandemic when it could have helped the most number of people. And if that's not when this could have been adopted that fast, we have a long way to go to solve these issues in peacetime. When we couldn't solve them in wartime, we have a long way to go to solve these in peacetime. So obviously, it's cheaper for a payer if a patient is not in the hospital, I'm struggling because I, I can see both sides of the issue. So I'm going to need you to straighten me out, Sumit, if we're thinking about this in a COVID way, right? So on one hand, what, it, you know, a hospital's like, why would I be doing something which is going to knock down my census? You know, like if I'm a fee for service, making most of my money on elective surgeries, which most of them are, or having heads in beds, then why would I be doing anything yep. in order to reduce that count? Especially, I mean, like, I'm not going to do something in my hospital. Why would I pay to do something outside the hospital? <laughs> Is there some other entity here that would be the champion stakeholder or like? <laughs> <laughs> you have laid bare the essence of the problem. You just very nicely described the challenge. And it all boils down to a very simple fact. 
our healthcare economy is fundamentally misaligned. Most powerful force in all of this is really the individual consumer. You've touched upon independent living, you know, a place to start to make some inroads into to make make a dent in changing the experience, the cost, the path of what happens could be driven by individuals where, you know, you're able to actually go buy some technology and put it in your home. And with that technology, you're able to avoid some, some important costs. And with that technology, you're, you've got some peace of mind that there is sensing that someone's watching over your shoulders. Now, that could be the starting point for one of these. And you take that to its logical next step. If we then started using some of that signal to say, well, you know, Mary Jones is going to wind up in the emergency room in the next 48 hours because of these things that, that we've just picked up. So basically what you're talking about is Mary Jones or Mary Jones's children, potentially. Yeah. And maybe they've decided, maybe Mary Jones is, I mean, she's, you know, she, she's not disabled or incapacitated enough that she would need on-premises care for sure. But ugh, we've all been in the situation where we have an older loved one at home and you're a little bit nervous if they're remembering to take their meds or if they've fallen. What you're saying is that Mary Jones or her family unit has installed these sensors in her home, Mrs. Jones's home, and now the sensors have picked up. There's a potential problem. That's exactly it. When that kind of a signal got picked up, the response was rather than wait for Mary Jones to call the ambulance 48 hours later, not even know that that's going to happen and you know, wind up with that emergency admission. Instead of that, we pick up that signal and we're actually now able to reach out to Mary Jones and say, hey, look, we're, we're seeing these rising risks. Can we please come over and run a few tests and potentially even admit you into a hospital at home while you're at home and prevent that ambulance ride and prevent that hardship and prevent that higher acuity from happening? You know, the incentives in how things work to today don't really enable this kind of proactive, preventive engagement. But just imagine a world where we could do this. Imagine the cost we would save. Imagine the hardship we would avoid. In that example that you just gave, the we, who is the we? Like you're saying, like we would pick up that there's a signal that there's an issue and initiate this chain of events, who would that be? Well, in the ideal world, the we would in fact be the people who care for you, your doctor, your providers, the institutions where you go to receive care would be able to extend that care into these kinds of proactive, preventive engagements. Those entities don't necessarily have the incentive to engage in these kinds of activities at large scale. And until those incentives align, until those incentives exist, where the cost of doing this is offset by the benefit. We're not going to see large-scale adoption of these kinds of changes in how healthcare is delivered. A couple of things. I mean, here's a really big stakeholder in the mix who does care a lot about cost as well as quality, and that is Medicare Advantage. That is an employer. You know, people Absolutely. who are on the hook for the total cost of care. Maybe it's a healthcare system that has a, you know, global capitated contract. Or maybe it's a ChenMed, someone who has a vested interest to keep patients out of the hospital. Are we going to have a situation here? And I know this is this is happening in other areas. Like, for example, you know, employers are signing up with companies like Dispatch Health and completely disintermediating local urgent cares. 
if we have a forward-thinking health system and they've got eyes on and they're seeing this growing Medicare Advantage or even Medicare Advantage for all trend, are the ones who aren't sort of thinking about or at least doing some scenario planning relative to how they would deploy services like this, you know, like what's the timeline on this? You've just given some clues about where I think this is going to, the the economy is going to emerge. There will be progressive forward-thinking entities that will embrace this kind of new model of care. They'll jump in and then they'll scale it up. They'll be driven, they'll be incentivized by exactly the kinds of companies that you've mentioned showing up new organizations, new ways of doing this with new entities that are fresh and agile and that have resource. And they'll show up and actually pull us along down that path exactly as you've described. And it's going to be very messy for a bit. And then there'll be entities that simply can't get there even with Medicare Advantage because the way things are right now is working very well for them. And they'll be the late adopters, right? They'll follow along when these kinds of models of care are starting to become more and more prevalent. It's going to take you know, a few decades for this to be how we live and receive care. But I think that exactly as you've described, technology on the one hand that can enable this new way of delivering care is on the horizon. You know, a few years ago, we never imagined that we could do rapid tests, blood-based tests, for the kinds of things that where you have to go to a hospital to get those tests done. We're going to see the rapid tests expand into the things that you need to measure to, to see the progression of chronic conditions and to test for the kinds of things you would normally wind up having to make an appointment in a hospital and go, go get a test done. We're going to see those becoming available in point of care and retail settings. That's the kind of technology that is that will become very, very real this year and the next. I see nothing but acceleration there. The kind of ambient sensing that I've described is similarly going to become quite commonplace by 2022, 23. We're going to have many companies in this space succeeding at solving the kinds of problems that are solvable around independent living, for example. You know, I never really thought about this before. Whenever we start thinking about aging in place or healthcare at home, I think my mind immediately goes to technology. But it's really interesting that you brought up also the number of tests that become possible without a blood test that's required, you know, so people can kind of like either themselves at home or or go to a setting that may not necessarily be equipped to do. Or a retail pharmacy or a nurse could could show up at home with, with the test, right? You know, Mary Jones is at home, something happens instead of her trying to figure out which one of her kids she can call to give her a ride to the ER because last time she was in the ambulance, they were mean to her or something, you know, like kind of creating yeah. this whole chaos in the family that in effect, the ER comes to her, that she doesn't have to leave her yeah. house and get all discombobulated, you know, in the healthcare setting, which a lot of older people, they come home and they're off kilter for a while. You know, she can get that ER in her home amongst a lot of other benefits of not going on premises, which we just talked about. Or even more than that, the need for an ER admission is actually avoided because you found out that something was going wrong. You wound up giving Mary a diuretic or you wound up giving Mary some other medication that actually prevented that episode from even happening, right? So that's really where the magic begins. That's when we start actually solving this cost problem at scale. When we're able to predict these things without people having to change their behavior and identify emerging risk so that the big question is the incentives then. 
How do you align incentives for the folks who will then care to see what's happening with the data so they can actually go solve that problem, take that cost out, and reap the benefit? A bigger obstacle is culture change. When you say culture change, are you talking about culture change amongst healthcare providers primarily who need to move from thinking incredibly transactionally and not necessarily taking ownership or responsibility for patients once they leave the four walls of the clinic to more of a, it's my job to ensure that this patient is able to attain health. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. And, and I, you know, I know many, many, I know a lot of doctors, a lot of providers, and not one of them, I can very safely say, not one of them thinks transactionally, but their way of working is transactional. The systems within which they work are transactional. That's one. Two, we are so risk averse. It's the underlying regulations. It's the underlying regulatory culture that also has to catch up and enable this kind of innovation. Your new endeavor, Cherish Health, has a direct consumer model, which I thought was really interesting. And you had mentioned that earlier that, you know, until systems can manage to get their oil rig turned or whatever that metaphor is, that, you know, Mm. here we are. So if you are a family and you would like your Grandma Mary to remain at home, you know, maybe there has to be some kind of consumer, at least interim step. Is solving this problem and enabling our grandmas to age in place, is this so expensive that only those of ample means are going to be able to afford it? And everybody else is pretty much just going to be stuck in the same model where Medicaid's paying for a home. So I think that there are so many everyday common people who have so much anxiety and expense as they worry about keeping their parents and their grandparents safe. It's not the one percenters, it's every one of us. And very frequently people wind up spending money to move mom or dad or both into a facility that itself costs money, paying the monthly fees. And so there are real costs that people, you know, everyday common people have to make choices to bear and figure out how to pay that could potentially be offset by these kinds of technologies that enable them to help their their loved ones stay safe, you know, where they want to be. This is about people with all sorts of frailty, you know, whether young or old. If technology can enable people to live longer where they want to be, with their friends, with their families, with more independence, with joy, and that technology can be simple in the air, so to speak, and affordable, you know, that can fundamentally change the path of all the issues that we're talking about here. They can lead the way to then bringing more and more healthcare, hospital care into our homes, right? This is really the continuum. I don't think that we're going to have mass, large-scale change in healthcare moving home until people are starting to adopt these kinds of capabilities, these kinds of services in their homes at scale that lead the way to then bringing healthcare into the home. I think that's the path that we will see unfold rather than the other way around. So it's going to be consumers who en masse demand it before the system starts to creak on its squeaky hinges and offer these services. Before it becomes logical to just kind of, wow, you know, we've got this data and it makes no sense for us to not use it. As I said, technology is one, incentives are two, and culture is three. And culture is going to be the hardest thing to solve here. Technology will get solved. It's proof will happen that people will buy it. People will adopt it. It will become important in people's lives. It will save people 
hardship. It will become affordable. That will happen. So let me step back. There are institutions in the U.S. that have actually embraced this vision. They are running headlong down this path. Well-established healthcare brands, well-established payers who've actually bought into this vision. Culture change is the hard thing that they're working through. And as these three things converge, incentives, culture, and technology, as they converge, we are going to see acceleration in this model of care becoming adopted. But those three things have to come together. And I think consumers are going to lead. So if someone is interested in learning more about Cherish Health and what you are up to, where would you direct them? CherishHealth.com. My email, sumit at CherishHealth.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, either because you want to talk about how you could participate, how you could join our efforts, or you're interested in joining us on this journey in other ways. Sumit Nagpal, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.